Well, this morning we are going to continue our journey together uh, toward the cross of Christ. We are in our season of Lent. We are making our journey toward our Easter celebration. Um, and we're going to take another look into just a small snapshot uh, from Jesus' ministry, uh, more specifically some of the teaching that he did with his disciples. Now, as I was thinking about this passage today, I, I was thinking about this, I think it's important that one of the things that we sometimes uh, might accidentally overlook as we read about Jesus' life is that what we have in the, in the Gospels, so in the, in the Bible we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, those four Gospels are, are just a glimpse into the three years of ministry that Jesus conducted. Just, just, a, just a quick glimpse. And if you've read them, you'll know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have some very similar stories. So we don't get the fullest picture of what happened in Jesus' ministry. We don't even get to see the first 30 years or so of his life. Jesus' primary focus in, in those three years that are captured in the Gospels was to train and to equip his disciples. Why? Because they were going to be the future of the church. It's important that we look at what the Gospels show us through this lens because we have to understand what is included in the Gospels is not an exhaustive account of what happened in Jesus' ministry. Uh, it, it, it covers the essentials for us, if you will. It covers the most important things. And while it's not entirely focused on, but it is certainly centered on the idea of discipleship, which Jesus perfectly modeled for us. What that means is, is Jesus, those, those, those four books are, are, are centered on Jesus teaching and training his disciples, those four books are centered on those three years they lived together, that Jesus worked with them, that Jesus had relationship with them, that Jesus taught them. We know that, that and we're reminded, particularly in this season that we're in right now, that Jesus' primary task was to come here as the perfect sacrifice. That was his primary task. He was, came here to die to take upon himself the sins of all that had come before and all that would come. He came again to rise again and to create a pathway for us to enter into eternity with God. And that's a really beautiful thing when we, when we consider the awesomeness of it all. What we receive it, it, as a free gift because of what Jesus has done for us is just, it's incredible. That was certainly the primary task that he was here to fulfill, but what we see really covered in the Gospels is what Jesus taught his disciples. It's what Jesus modeled to his disciples. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're in Mark chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me, and I want to give you a little bit of context before we read our passage together. Uh, Mark's gospel moves very quickly. If you've read the gospels, you, you may have noticed this, that Mark's gospel is, is a rapid uh, fire uh, listing of things that Jesus did in his ministry. Even the language that Mark uses sometimes uh, just kind of creates this gotta keep moving, gotta keep going kind of feeling mentality throughout the whole thing. Uh, much of Mark's writings could really be described more as just snippets. If you go through, it's like, this is what happened here, and this is what happened here, and this is what happened here. He just keeps on moving all the way through the story. He didn't spend a lot of time, Mark, setting the stage for Jesus' life. He didn't talk about when Jesus was born. He didn't give a lot of genealogy. He just got right into it, right in Mark chapter 1. So in Mark chapter 8, he has just shared the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 
That's right, I said 4,000, not 5,000, because it happened twice. The first time, five, second, four. He, he did this two different times. In this story, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had just finished feeding the 4,000. Both of these had very similar uh, uh, turnouts. It's a lot like my house. There were leftovers, okay? And both events has happened. So at the conclusion of that story in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, uh, uh, Mark says in verse 10 of chapter 8 that Jesus left that situation, he left that feeding of the 4,000 with his disciples, he got on a boat, and he went to another area. And then we pick it up there in verse 11 of chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. It says this, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, shocker, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, he got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now they, referring to the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. It's ironic considering what has just happened, don't you think? All this bread, they have one. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Some translations will say yeast, same thing. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. We'll talk about that later. And Jesus was aware of this. He said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? Several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, coach some soccer for the Youth Soccer Association. I know what you're thinking. He looks like a soccer player. He dresses like a soccer player. Uh, I had uh, never played nor coached soccer ever in my life. This is how desperate they were for coaches. Uh, I think I was coaching, I think they were six-year-olds, and all I basically had to do was follow a set of instructions on how to run the plays, to do some basic workout stuff and so on, and, and I really did not know anything about soccer. Like, if this was my soccer knowledge uh, before coaching, after coaching, we're right about here. I still am not 100% sure what's happening when I watch the game. So, so here I am, I'm coaching this team of like 10 to 12 six-year-olds on how to play a game that I have never, ever played. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this term. It's called herding cats. Anybody ever heard of that? Herding cats? Uh, I want you to just picture that for just a moment. What it would look like to herding cats. What it would look like to herd cats. This is what it looks like to coach 10 or 12 six-year-olds in soccer. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had a great time. We made some, some great friends, and today I'll even see some of those kids maybe at a school function or around town, and I get hugs and high fives. That made it worth it. All the time, all the hurt, cat hurting made it worth it. But if you ever worked with a group of six-year-olds, uh, it doesn't matter how many you've worked with, it can be a huge challenge because there are constant distractions. 
Uh, sometimes there are unplanned and occasionally unwelcomed hugs. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, coach, I'm so happy to get up. There is the occasional complete loss of control over one's hands or arms. I don't know what happens, but sometimes with a six-year-old, things just happen. They hit, one, they hit things, they don't even know what's going on. And sometimes, this is really one of the worst, it's when someone gets looked at in the wrong way. <laughs> and, and the end result is that someone ends up having to seek emergency medical attention. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the worst thing you can do as a six-year-old, look at them the wrong way. It's a pretty tough situation. Uh, even... Even more frustrating than that <clears throat> is that sometimes no matter what you do, no matter how you say it, no matter how many times you demonstrate it, teach it, show it, practice it, they just don't get it. It just does not register and I don't know what's going on. It does not click. And this doesn't just apply to soccer teams, okay? If you've had children or been around children, you can relate. You know exactly what I'm talking about. See, in our story today, we, we have a moment. Actually, we have two moments. And the first one is with the Pharisees, and the second one is with Jesus' disciples. And, and there are moments when Jesus literally asks, don't you get it? That's what he's, that's what he's asking, don't you get it? First, it's the, the Pharisees coming to him again, and they're asking for him to give them some sort of a sign from heaven. Now, they're not asking for some sort of a miracle to be done, like, I don't know, feeding a bunch of people with a little bit of bread or healing a deaf man or healing a... They're not asking for that. They're asking for a, a direct sign, a message from God that will confirm that Jesus is the one that they had been promised that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the prophecies. They are asking for a sign that he is the Messiah. Second, it's the disciples in the boat with Jesus. They're so preoccupied with the fact, ironically, that they don't have any food, that they don't even hear what Jesus is saying to them. Or maybe they hear it, but they weren't actually listening. The other day I told my youngest, Zeke, <clears throat> I said, Zeke, go and get ready for bed. Now, Zeke is three, He's really a pretty good communicator. Those of you who've talked to him, you know he can talk. He, can, he understands most everything you're saying. He's fully capable of dressing himself for bed, even though he doesn't want to. But he is fully capable of dressing himself for bed. So he comes back 15 minutes later, no joke. He's got like spy goggles on his face. He has put on a Power Rangers suit, and he has donned a camouflage backpack. And I'm looking at this whole situation, and I'm thinking to myself, this is not bedtime attire. There's nothing about what you're doing right now that, that suggests you're going to bed. So I, I begin to assess, what have I done wrong as a parent? Where, where did I fail, right? Where do my communication skills break down? Because <clears throat> what, what did I say to him 15 minutes ago when I said, Zeke, I want you to go get ready for bed that somehow translated into spy goggles, Power Ranger suit, and a camo backpack? What happened? Some, somewhere there was a breakdown. Now, just a couple days later, this happened uh, Friday morning. Uh, I, I'm home on Friday. Uh, Zeke comes in. I'm getting dressed for the day. He says, Daddy, where are you going now? 
The truth is I wasn't going anywhere. I was staying right there. I was working from my home office that day. But like any good dad, I love to antagonize my children. I know scripture says you shouldn't do it, but it's really fun. <laughs> and so I said, uh, I'm going to the moon. <laughs> the moon? Yeah, I'm going to the moon. Now, I should have stopped right there. That, that's where I should have stopped. But I didn't because I'm a good dad. I said, do you want to go with me? Yeah, sure. And so for the next 15 minutes, I'm answering questions on how we're going to get to the moon. And, 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 and what will we be wearing? Is anybody else going to be going with us? And when exactly is this excursion going to be taking place? The best part was when he asked me when we were going, and my response was another good parent response, soon. And Josiah interjected at that point, and he goes, Zeke, that means later. <laughs> He's not wrong, it's true. What is amazing to me in this situation is simply this. Zeke completely missed the mark when I gave him the simple instruction to go get ready for bed. But when the possibility of going to the moon was brought up, <gasps> there was hardly anything I could do to shake his focus. He was so intent on finding more answers to this potential fantastic journey to the moon. The Pharisees that demanded a sign from heaven regarding the validity of Jesus, they were not there to try to back him up. They were trying to disprove him. They were trying to discredit him. They were doing everything they could to discredit him as a teacher, to discredit him as a rabbi. And they had already seen him do some pretty incredible things. But Jesus' response to them when they say, we'd like to have a sign, Jesus says to them, this generation will not receive a sign. When he says this generation, he's talking about those whose hearts have been hardened. And this goes all the way back to Moses when Moses said that the children of Israel were blemished. Why? Because they had turned their backs on God. They had hardened their hearts against God. After all the incredible things that God had done for them, they had hardened their hearts. And that generation remained, and it was alive and well in the heart and the spirit of the Pharisees. Their hearts were too hard to see that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Now, the disciples were another matter entirely. They were with Jesus day in and day out. They had seen him feed thousands. They had seen him heal many. They had listened to him teach. They probably heard him snore. That's how much they were with Jesus. You know, you've been with someone when you've heard them snore. If anyone should have known to listen and to be attentive to what Jesus was saying, it should have been the disciples. Yet, they missed it. They didn't even hear Jesus' warning, hey, be careful about those guys. They're bad news. Now we have some of those same things happening today. We spend so much of our time just waiting for God to do something big. 
Maybe we're just waiting on pins and needles for Jesus to come back and we're investing time and energy in trying to figure it out. We read books and we listen to people that call themselves prophets and we're pretty sure that all the stars are lining up. We, can't just, we just can't wait for God to do this, this big thing. Or maybe it's a healing We just want to see God heal this one, or we want to see God heal that one, or maybe it's even you. You just want to see God heal you, or maybe it's our nation, our country. You're convinced that God is just waiting for for just the right moment, and then bam, the bottom's going to fall out of all of it, and what has been made wrong will be made right. Well, whatever it is, we're just waiting for, and we're asking for, and we're anticipating the next big thing, and God says... Nope, not gonna do it. I'm not doing it. Why? Why? Why, God? Why won't you do this big thing? Why would you keep this from happening? Why don't you show us a sign? Why don't you knock our socks off? God says, because your heart is heart and isn't even in the right place. Do you want me to come back because you long to see me? or because you're tired. Do you want me to heal you because you you want to see my glory revealed in you or because you don't wanna deal with this burden anymore? Do, Do you want to see your nation healed because you don't like this president or the past president or what's happening or do you want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So often our motivation is like the Pharisees. We just want to know what's in it for us. We're just like the psalmist. He said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Or perhaps we're a little bit more like the disciples. Admittedly, Jesus was even more frustrated with them. He was, he was more exasperated with them. The, the simple instruction he gave to them was this. Watch out for these guys. They are dangerous. They are trouble. And their response was equally profound. Which one of you morons forgot the bread? Jesus says, hey, you you really gotta be careful about these guys because they are dangerous. I'm I'm warning you, you gotta pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. Yeah, who's got some mayo? Just think for a moment. What are the things in your life, perhaps in the church, that we allow to distract us from what Jesus is telling us? The disciples were more concerned about their bellies than what Jesus had to say. Now, I know that none of you have ever been there. None of you have ever been distracted by your belly, right? Second service is worse, I'll be honest. (laughs) I have, though. I've been distracted. And when I mean my belly, I'm not necessarily talking about hunger pains. I'm really talking about my flesh my desires, my selfishness. There have been times in my life when I was more concerned about what my flesh desired, what myself craved, or what most interested and concerned me than what Jesus had for me. 
Jesus' response to them in this moment. Why, why are you even talking about bread? Don't, don't you get what I'm saying to you? Don't you understand? Is your heart that hard? Don't you hear me? Don't you, don't you see the things that I'm doing? Don't you get it? Sometimes we're like the disciples in that we're so consumed with whatever is right in front of us or whatever is of the most immediate concern to us that we are missing what God is doing, we do not hear and we do not see. The season of Lent that we find ourselves in right now is intended to be a season of preparation. But it's not just preparation for an event. It's not just preparation for a day. We might sometimes make the mistake of saying that Lent prepares us for Easter, but Lent is far more than that. Lent is preparing us for every day of our lives and our walk with Jesus because Lent is about stripping away whatever it is that keeps us from hearing and seeing as we should. Lent is about removing our desires and our cravings for the big stuff so that we can see all the stuff. Lent is about softening our hearts as we make intentional sacrifices so that we can receive what God has for us. Not just on Easter weekend, but every day. Lent is about cleansing from our lives the things that can corrupt us and can poison our hearts and keep us from seeing who God is for us. When Jesus says, in Mark 8, to be aware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, this is what he's saying. It doesn't take much to ruin a good thing. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He gave them this warning. You'll see on the screen here, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. It says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole Lump. What Paul is saying here is, is this, this little bit of leaven or yeast, it may be a very small thing, but it makes a huge impact. So he says this in verse 7, you need to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul's telling us you have to get rid of the old leaven. You have to get rid of the old yeast. What is that? It's the old identity. It is the old mindset. It is the old you. You have to take on the new leaven, the new identity, the new mindset. And that new leaven is Jesus Christ at work in you. That new leaven is the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which transforms your life. In reality, our identity, just as men and women and children is really nothing but flatbread, right? Just, just flatbread without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, without the power of Christ at work in us, we are nothing. But too often we allow the things of the world to puff us up. <laughs> we allow sin to puff us up. We allow pride to puff us up. We allow our desires and our cravings to puff us up and make us into a nice, plump dinner roll. 
But God says, I just want you to be simple. I want you to be genuine. I want you to be without pride. You may have entered into this season of Lent or any season of your walk with God with great expectations. You're, you are primed and you're ready to see something spectacular. And, and that's, not, that's not altogether a bad thing because God has done and continues to do some incredibly amazing stuff. But God is not the greatest showman. <laughs> okay? He doesn't, he doesn't come here to knock your socks off. That's not why God comes. That's not why God is interested in you. He's not interested in, in what can I do to just blow your mind. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's what he wants. But sometimes I think that we, we listen to me, we, we overvalue God's power to do amazing things, but we undervalue his power to change our lives. Hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God is limited in some way or that he can't do really big things because he absolutely can. What I am saying is that we place, we sometimes place all of our emphasis on the big things God can do or might do and that we hope he will do, but we miss why Jesus came in the first place. And it's really simple, Luke 19. He came to seek and to save the lost. Did Jesus do amazing things? You bet he did. Jesus did some pretty cool stuff. You should go read about it. This is actually a pretty cool book. There's some incredible things that happen in here. Get yourself an illustrated version if it makes it easier. More pictures, less words. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus raised people from the dead. Whoa. He, he raised people from the dead. He gave, he gave sight back to people who were blind. He gave hearing back to people who could not hear. Jesus turned water into wine. And all of these things are, are, are amazing. and They're hard for us to even fully understand. But all these things, none of these things compared to the greatest miracle of all. Do you know what that is? The greatest miracle of all. Do you know what that is? It's that Mike gave his life to Jesus. It's that Amanda gave her life to Jesus. It's that Tim gave his life to Jesus. And Frank, that's an amazing story. Frank gave his life to Jesus. I mean it, and you know it. I'm not making fun of him. It said Julie gave her life to Jesus. And Katie gave her life to Jesus. And Matt gave his life. That's what's so incredible about this story. Who cares about people being raised from the dead and people getting their sight restored and being able to hear again? God can change your life. Oh, man. As you continue this journey, both in these days of Lent, but also in your everyday walk with Jesus, I want to encourage you with this this morning. Don't let your focus be solely on the big things, okay? Don't be like Zeke. Dad, when are we going to the moon? What do I have to wear? Who's going with us? How are we gonna get there? Don't let your focus be strictly on the big things. Make your prayer that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear what he is doing in the details when God says, Zeke, go get ready for bed. Okay, I can handle that one. That's easy. That's really simple. I know that instruction. I've heard that before. 
or maybe when God says to you, hey, be careful about those guys. They are bad juju. That's not a very good illustration because they were Jews. <laughs> They're bad. Erase that one from the video. <laughs> they were bad news. That's a better way of saying that. Listen, you get, a, you get several mulligans as a pastor. That's one of mine. Um, and here's the third thing. I want you to ask God to soften your heart. Soften your heart to what he is doing and what he is saying for you and for all of those who are around you. Because more often than not, it will be that still, small voice that says something like, watch out for those guys, they're bad news. Hey, I need you to just, just stop for a minute and would you just listen? I don't know why you're upset about this, but you need to let it go. I don't know why you're carrying that hurt, but you need to forgive. I don't know why you're angry, but you need to find peace. I don't know why you're bitter, but you need to have joy. Do you see that person over there? I just need you to go love on them for a minute. I know this goes against everything you're about, but that guy in the corner with the sign, give him $5. I know she said something mean and horrible and hateful to you, but would you just go up and give her a hug right now? I know your neighbor trimmed your trees for you and you really want to burn his house down, but maybe you could go over and bring him a fresh plate of cookies. I know you're hurting, I know you're upset, I know you feel like, like everything you do is just wrong and everyone is just picking on you, but I need you to just be faithful to what I've called you to do. Those are still small voice moments. There's not gonna be some big flashing sign, there's not going to be a great big sign from heaven. It's gonna be God talking to you because your heart is soft enough to receive it. Heavenly Father, would you give us soft hearts? Would you give us receptive spirits to you? Father, I pray that we would not be people that chase big, grand things from you, but that we would be people who have learned to be still and to be quiet and to hear you speak to us and to guide us each step. Father, would you teach us your ways that we would rely on you and your faithfulness. Would you give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name. In Jesus' name, amen.